WFMP 1065 Forward Radio began broadcasting here at the historic Habern Building five years ago this April. Stay tuned for our celebration plans. Now, before we flip the switch, planning, organizing, and fundraising began about five years before that. Big thanks to John Hartman, who brought the idea to the steering committee of the Louisville chapter of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And Jenny Welsh, Matt Lane, and a team of volunteers from WRFN in Nashville were up multiple times lending invaluable assistance, helping us navigate the low power radio system. None of us really had backgrounds in radio. The Habern Building team, Cindy Euler, and our current point person here at Habern, Larry Wright, helped us kick off and five years later are still so helpful. And last but not least, Louisville FOR. They took a big, big gamble on our working group's vision for an all-volunteer radio station. Thank you, Louisville FOR, and special thanks to the late Tim Sheldorf, who worked tirelessly to help us make it happen. WFMP 106.5 Forward Radio does not endorse any particular candidate or pieces of legislation, but we do endorse the need for an informed electorate. As such, we offer equal airtime to all registered candidates for any particular office, and you can get in touch with us at forwardradio.org. The following is a recent candidate interview recorded at the station's community for the station's community access hour. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the station. I want to let our listeners know that the views and opinions expressed here on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. Other candidates who are interested in sharing their perspective can contact Forward Radio at forwardradio.org and click on the contact us. We are open to uh, different perspectives. This is a nonpartisan radio station. Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn. <clears throat> Let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments that I might make on this program. I represent my personal views and do not represent the views of either the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. Uh, this is Eugene Shively. The comments I make don't represent the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville, nor do they represent Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky. Uh, we have a special guest today, and, and this, is a, this is a first for this program. We have Andrew Owen. Andrew is running for the 9th uh, Metro District Metro Council uh, seat to replace Bill Hollander, who is retiring. Um, when, and our topic, uh, we're not going to ask, um, we've had many, uh, many guest speakers, uh, health uh, individuals talking about an assortment of health issues. And today, um, we're, we've asked Andrew to try to approach this from a somewhat different perspective so that we can discuss health, the health care issues in, the, in a sense that the kinds of um, uh, the views that the public would like to hear about from someone in public office or someone running uh, for public office. So, Andrew, uh, we welcome you. We appreciate your willingness to join us and have this conversation. And as we've done with our, our, our other guests, we're going to give you an opportunity to um, make whatever comments you'd like for as long as you'd like. Uh, I, I would suggest you um, introduce yourself and um, give the listeners a, 
an indication of why you're running for public office. And after, after that, then we'll have get the conversation begin. So the floor is yours. Great. No, I appreciate you guys having me. Um, I, uh, I'm Andrew Owen, and I am running for the 9th District Metro Council seat. And by trade, I am a, uh, own a small business and am a, an entre- a kind of an incurable entrepreneur. Um, I own uh, Preston Thomas Properties, which is a commercial investment brokerage and management, commercial real estate investment brokerage and management company. Um, my background is, in, academic background is in history and urban planning and finance and real estate. Um, so as you can tell from that, uh, I am not a, uh, an MD or a uh, master's in public health. So my, uh, my opinions uh, on, on single payer healthcare and other issues related to healthcare are only informed by my own curiosity and not by any specific training. Um, so I'm running for Ninth District Metro Council in part because I think this part of the city, these neighborhoods that are in the Ninth District are the best neighborhoods in, in the city. And it would be an absolute honor to represent the people of those neighborhoods at Metro Council. Um, I've lived in a, in a, a number of different neighborhoods in Louisville. Uh, great neighborhoods, uh, have great people, great history, um, great housing. Um, but when my wife and I decided to, to leave Belgravia Court in Old Louisville, which was a difficult decision because we loved it there, uh, the choice of where to move was pretty simple. And it was really related to the, the number and quality of local businesses, local shops, local restaurants uh, in the Ninth District. And that's what I think separates the Ninth District from, from any other neighborhood in Louisville. Um, so um, I, I want to, uh, I'm gonna be focusing on a couple of things. The, the core of the job of Metro Council and something that you have to do well or you won't have the space to do anything else is constituent communication and constituent services. And so that has been a, the, 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 all of the representatives in the ninth district for decades have been very, very strong in that regard. And, and, and I, and the expectations of the residents of the ninth district are very high in that regard. And so that will be you know, the primary focus of, of our office to continue offering high level of service and communication. Um, we also want to make sure, especially, especially in a post COVID world, that we support the, the local shops and businesses uh, along Frankfurt Avenue, in St. Matthews, along Brownsboro Road and Lexington Road. Um, you know, this is a different world that we're living in post COVID and we're not immune to uh, boarded up shops and boarded up uh, places like like has happened in other parts of the city. And so I want to make sure that the St. Matthew's Chamber of Commerce has the resources that it needs and the Frankfurt Avenue Business Association has the resources that it needs to support those local businesses and make sure they continue to thrive. Um, and we can do that a, a number of ways programmatically, but we can also do that by making sure that the public infrastructure uh, along those, those business corridors uh, is as good as we can make it. Uh, and that includes small things like curbs and sidewalks and signage and making sure that crosswalks that have uh, faded to the point where you can almost no longer see them uh, are, are repainted, uh, make sure that there are plantings and things that make people want to be out and about and walking in those business corridors and, and spending money in, in those local places. Um, and then I would just say also that from a metro perspective, uh, you, you focus on, on taking care of the people in your district, but then you have the, the opportunity on the Metro Council to help shape the future of, of the city of Louisville. And, and I, there's, we have a lot of issues that we need to, to, to address, but from my perspective, many of the issues that we have can be mitigated in part by focusing on social equity. And, and that simply means investing in the people and places and neighborhoods that have, have the least political, social, and economic capital. 
Um, and so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, that's kind of generally where I'm coming from and what I'm hoping to do. Great. That's we that we appreciate that very much. And so what we're going to do, we're going to focus on, uh, on on health issues rather than sidewalks and things like that. And this, and and it, now this is a, I, the social equity issues are are are, are sort of fundamental to healthcare. So Gene, I'm going to let you fire the first round across Andrew's bow, and we'll get the ball rolling. Okay. Well, <laughs> one of the problems that all governments face is uh, health insurance. And uh, does the cost of health insurance, uh, particularly with uh, uh, the increased cost with for-profit health insurance company affecting uh, metro, metro government? And uh, how do you think uh, uh, we can solve that problem? I'm sure it affects your own uh, business as a predominant uh, cost. Well, from my, my specific perspective as a, as a small business owner, um, I'm, I'm one of those unfortunate people who are in the, in the, in the marketplace, right? So I'm self-employed and I'm out in, on the health marketplace paying for very, very expensive and not very good insurance for my family. Um, so I certainly have that perspective, which is really the last place you want to be in our current health, health system environment. But from a, from a Metro perspective, and, and I was asking around a little bit about this. I have the, the, the Metro budget, the approved, approved Metro budget in front of me from 2021, 2021. And we spent $51 million on health insurance uh, for, for Metro employees. Um, my understanding is that we are, they call it as being self-insured. Self but basically what that means is that the employees of Metro government have their own, are their own pool uh, uh, that are insured. And so a few years ago when we had within that, that pool of employees, which I think is about 5,000, we had a number of claims um, within that pool. The price of insurance for the city went up that year. And so it was variable based on the, the, the health needs of, of that pool. But the question that came to mind for me um, was, what if we move to a single payer system and the federal government is paying for um, health insurance for everyone in the country? Would that $51 million line item in the Metro budget go away? And it's a very interesting question. My, my own answer without a ton of being really informed is that that would go away and we would have $51 million to do other things with that. Now, that's not to say that the federal government wouldn't try to claw back some of that uh, from other other ways. But what a what a huge boon that would be to both Louisville and other cities and, and states across the country. Every other, almost every other first world country has figured out a way to do something like that that allows the government to provide health care as an essential public service as opposed to a commodity. And, um, you know, and if you think about, I mean, <laughs> Medicare has a, has a, has a, at a 2% administrative cost and 98% of that money goes to provide health care. And if we could establish some kind of a national program like they have in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, it would make the, the whole delivery system simpler as well as cutting the cost. Now, Gene, you've had some, you've got some data about where the money goes with healthcare in this country. Why don't you share that with Andrew while we're on this aspect of it, and then we can move on to maybe some other areas. Well, we uh, spend about uh, $3.6 trillion a year in healthcare, and about a third of that goes to places that are really not healthcare. For example, uh, for-profit insurance companies. We're one of the few countries that have turned medicine into an industry uh, where uh, it's profit-oriented. And we've got this huge cost in administration, huge cost uh, in uh, pharmacy charges, uh, we're the only country in the world that advertises drugs, uh, hospitals, doctors, et cetera. Uh, 
We even now equity companies uh, owning uh, nursing homes, et cetera. It goes on and on and on. And it's gradually, uh, actually in the last four or five years, uh, gotten much worse. So uh, we, we've created a system that doesn't exist anywhere else and it's costing us a, a, a huge amount of money. I would like to go back and ask you one other question. That is, how, uh, how difficult it is for you as a self-employed person to get insurance and how that's affected your, uh, your bottom line and affected you and your family personally? Well, it's not difficult to get if you can afford it. I mean, that's, that's the issue. <laughs> yeah, if you can afford it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I mean, I think you can take, I think I pay somewhere between fifteen and $18,000 a year for a family of four for very poor health care, uh, health insurance that nobody wants to take. I call them and tell them what health insurance I have. And they're like, ugh. Uh, and some people are like, we don't take that. Other people are like, we'll take that, I guess. So it's not great health insurance. It's expensive and it has high deductibles. So how has it affected my bottom line? I spend a ton of money for bad insurance. Uh, do you have your own uh, health savings account? Does that help? It does help. Um, and you can mitigate some of the expense that way. And I do have a health savings account. It's, 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 a, it's a reasonable tool to use, but it, at the, at the end of the day, it's just working around the edges and improving what a, a, a bad system around the edges, right? So it's expensive and, and that helps some. Let, let's focus a little bit on some of the issues that, um, <clears throat> uh, the political issues that float around with healthcare in this country today. Um, Andrew, the you know, the vaccination issue, I'd, I'd like to get your views about it. And um, uh, unfortunately, I, th I think local public officials have, have actually got limited ability to change some of these things because of the way um, the way laws are written in, in, the, in the legislature. But, you know, we've got we've got vaccine, the issue of vaccine mandates. We've got the issue of sort of recommending uh, uh, vaccinations. Um, in France, you can't go into a, you can't go into a bar, you can't go into a gym, you can't go into a restaurant. And my, one of my older daughters lives in New York and it's the same thing there. Here, uh, there are only two restaurants in town that I'm aware of that, that require vaccination, proof of vaccination before you can eat there. Um, the other day, I, I, I was calling around at a couple of um, athletic facilities. I, I resigned from the Y during the beginning of the pandemic, and I was thinking about um, rejoining one of them. I'm not going to mention the names. Uh, and neither one of them require any sort of proof of vaccination, and they're doing this sort of wishy-washy, well, we recommend everybody does that. So <clears throat> let me just pass this over to you. I, 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 this is, I, I think it's a difficult question, but this is the kind of, these are the kind of issues I think that the public would like to hear about from somebody in public office. And could you give us your views? You've got vaccination in schools, restaurants, gyms, uh, you name it. So if there is one place where the government ought to be able to mandate certain things. It's related to public health. I mean, I, you know, and, and, what, and what form that takes, uh, that's I think open for, for more debate. Do you encourage people to get vaccinated and to wear masks? And ideally, of course, you wouldn't have to mandate anything. People would do what's in the best interest of both themselves and their fellow humans. Um, but if you can't get enough people to do that, then again, I'll say it again, if there's one place where you lose your individual rights as it relates to the government mandating you to do things or not, for me, it's public health. I mean, and, and, and why is that? because what you do affects 
everyone else. And so that's why it's very different than, you know, other, other laws that are seen as taking away personal freedoms and, and all of those sorts of things because of the way pandemics work. Every action that is taken by any individual citizen affects everyone else, which is why, why you know, I think that's where the argument ends as it, as it relates to, you know, government taking away my individual freedoms. It ends for me as it, with a pandemic, a global pandemic. And so I think it's as simple as that for me. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. But sadly, uh, there's a lot of people who don't, including uh, one of our, our senators who has got some of the nuttiest ideas I think I've ever heard. Uh, let's just move from, from uh, masking to, to vaccinations because that <clears throat> the same issue, public health issue, uh, you know, your thoughts on vaccination mandates versus vaccination recommendations. Well, let's not forget that we had a problem with anti-vaccine long before this pandemic hit. So this is not a, a new issue. Um, and it's primarily driven by misinformation, I think, on, on social media. And, and I don't know how you fix that problem. Once I mean, social media is an incredible is an incredible tool, um, and it can do great things. But social media is it's it's a horse that's hard to put back in the barn, uh, as they say. So well, it's a double edged sword, clearly. Correct. And so once you know, it, 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 anybody can get any message out there, and and you can't make that message go away. So um, I think. As it relates to getting vaccinated, I think, you know, that if, if I have a private company, I think I should absolutely be able to require people that work for me to be vaccinated um, or not. I think as a government, um, I should be able to require people to be vaccinated. Um, and, you know, how far that goes, uh, those seem to me like like obvious steps as it well, it, it doesn't go to Texas, so you, you better not. <laughs> well, <move. laughs> no, I understand that. I, I guess I mean like whether you require universal vaccination or whether you require just vaccine vaccinations related to employment contracts. Um, that's what I what I meant by that. But you're absolutely right; it doesn't go to Texas and other places. You know, we have uh, I, what I think 30 million people in this country who are who are not vaccinated. And, and they, they, they keep the pandemic going. The virus has a place to go. Uh, they get sick. They go into the hospitals that are overloaded. Uh, they end up in ICUs, on ventilators, and dying. And uh, it's just astonishing to me that there's so much inconsistency in the messaging from um, the politicians in this country, including in the state of Kentucky. Uh, about well, that's, a re that, that's a really good point, Mike. I mean, I, I, I think I, I, you hear so much as, in, as it relates to, to, to guns and gun control, but also other things about people trampling on my individual freedoms. But where is the counter argument? Like, if you have, if you have your individual rights to have COVID and go wherever you want, whenever you want, and get a bunch of people sick, where does that individual right of yours not to be vaccinated and not to be masked, for example, start trampling on everyone else's individual rights to feel safe and be healthy? And, I, I, and it's the same thing with the gun control argument. Your right to have a military-style weapon you know, is trampling on my right to feel safe. And I don't think there's enough pushback when it comes to where one person's individual rights start and stop as it relates to somebody else's. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a very important place where we should be pushing back. Again, I, individual, this, this, this whole country is built on individual freedoms and property rights and all of that. And I'm not questioning that, but there are degrees and that's you know where you draw the line on these things. And to me, when somebody else's individual freedoms, as they want to call them, start trampling all over my individual freedoms, somewhere in there is a line that needs to be drawn. 
Well, I've read the Second Amendment. It's very clear. It's only about two lines, and it begins with a statement about a, 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 a state militia, not some guy driving around in a trick pickup truck <clears throat> with an AR-15. Uh, let me ask you, what, what, what kind of, what, what local, what is the local situation in terms of, of the ability of the Metro Council to regulate or control access to guns? I know the state has got all kinds of crazy ideas about people carrying guns into the, <laughs> into the legislature if they want to. But where where is what's where is Louisville? Well, let me let me start with what I think is the most egregious um, issue as it relates to to buying and selling guns, and it's kind of referred to as the gun show loophole. I, I had a, a conversation this morning um, with a member of the Metro Council, and we were talking about uh, a, a lot of the, a lot of these issues, and. He was saying, you can go right across the street here to Freedom Hall and you can buy backpacks and duffel bags and trunks full of weapons and no one will ask you for ID. No one will ask you. It's an absolute free-for-all. So, so, so right there, what seems to me like an extremely common sense piece of gun legislation would be to close that gun show loophole. And that the polling numbers on that, for example, are through the roof for, you know, both parties. And yet it hasn't happened and doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. But right there, you can just buy boatloads of ammunition and guns without anybody asking any questions. Now, is that issue not addressed because of, of, of state regulations or state laws, or is that not addressed because of issues of the Metro Council not not having um, solidarity on on that? I think it's not. It, I, I don't know for sure. I have to be honest. I don't know for sure, but I I think that is state legislation. That um, for I'll give you some examples. Um, the reason I say that, and these are different states, but I know that, for example. Uh, Chicago had, you know, stricter gun rights or stricter gun controls that were yes. thrown out at some point by by judges or the state of Illinois. So I, I, I think they've at the state level, they've made it so local jurisdictions cannot pass any uh, gun legislation that overrides state law. I think that's where the issue is and not something as it relates to Metro Council people not being able to get on the same page. Yeah, Gene. Yeah. Going back to mandates, uh, mandates is not a new issue. George Washington demanded uh, that uh, his soldiers get vaccinated for smallpox. The British had all been vaccinated, been exposed to smallpox, but Americans had not. And so we were losing the war. So he mandated that all his uh, soldiers get vaccinated uh, for smallpox. In uh, 1905, this issue came up again. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided for public epidemics that you had to be vaccinated. So we've forgotten how serious and uh, what a big problem these are. We have mandates for rubella, uh, for uh, small, we used to have for smallpox and polio, uh, for diphtheria, tetanus, uh, but for some reason we've made uh, uh, COVID a political issue, which uh, I don't understand. Yeah, Andrew, let me, I mean, uh, on that same issue of, of mandates versus, versus recommendations, now I read an article in the Courier Journal in late January, which uh, focused on the COVID issue in public services, uh, the garbage collection, uh, public safety, the jails, low vaccination rates in the police, the fire department, EMS, and Metro Corrections. And, you know, for the life of me, I, I don't understand what is in, in the heads of, of, of everybody from a policeman to a fireman, or someone works in the jail. Uh, the um, kind of, uh, <laughs> well, I know this I, is I, a hard question, but I, you know, we're talking about health issues in public office. So what do you I, think? I 
I won't pretend to know what's in those people's heads, but let's talk about it in terms of, of how that affects how much money the city has to spend on certain things. Let's talk about it in terms of you've got a certain number of city employees, whether they be police or any, any number of uh, corrections or EMS or whoever that you just mentioned. And you have a certain number who are unvaccinated. You have a certain number who get sick and have to take time off. Who, who, do, who, 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 who does that cost? That costs the metro government and the taxpayer. So these, these decisions that are being made have, have uh, consequences that affect all of us, right? So, I mean, these are not things that, that one guy or gal makes a decision and the consequences are all visited on them and them alone. No, those are all decisions that affect all of us. And you can point to the, the cost of, of health care. You can point to the cost of, of um, people being sick and, and needing time off. And, you know, they, they stopped picking up yard, yard waste. And then part of that was because they didn't have enough people to do the job. So yeah, yeah, I remember, remember that, that these, there are consequences to these individual decisions. So no, how can no, we not, solve that problem? Yeah, well, before you answer that, yeah, the, the, the article, 55% of the police were, were vaccinated, 50% of the fire department, 50% of TARC, and 51% of Metro Corrections. And, you know, <clears throat> as Gene said, how do we solve the problem? I guess I would ask you, um, you know, at least in my opinion, the, 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 the government is, needs to have a strong stand on this. I know it's difficult dealing with the police unions because they've got some nutty ideas about a lot of things that, I, I mean, I think being a policeman is a very, very difficult job. And, um, uh, you know, I, uh, the, the uh, candidate for mayor yesterday who was fired upon, uh, you know, has talked about putting together, you know, community focused policing. I think those things make a lot of sense. But, uh, you know, I, I guess my question is, is, as Gene said, how do we fix this? I think that local government needs to be more uh, like New York. They, they, New York City was forced because of the issues, all the people, all the variabilities in forcing these, uh, enforcing these vaccine mandates, and it worked. Uh, so I, I know where, where you stand, but where, where, do you, where do you see the Metro Council um, in, in doing something more, more definitive or forward, you know? <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I'm just going to let you go. Listen, the, the easy answer is if you work for Metro government, then you ought to, you ought to be, uh, and the Metro government says that you have to be vaccinated, then, then you ought to, ought to have to do that from my perspective. Now, do I see anything uh, significant changing anytime soon? I just, I don't see that there's any appetite for that. Uh, at, at Metro Council. Um, I could be wrong about that. I'm, I'm not on the Metro Council currently. And so I don't talk to the, I have talked to, to some of them here and there, but I don't see them and talk to them every day. But I don't get the feeling there's an appetite uh, for that. I think many of them certainly agree with us that, that those numbers are way too low and, and that encouragement has not worked. And so I think many of them think that the right thing to do is to, to mandate that city employees be vaccinated. Um, but I don't know that there's any appetite. I'm afraid if you do that, the legislature is going to overrule you. There's a bill in the legislature right now uh, trying to do away with all mandates uh, for schools, including vaccination and masks. And it says, essentially says that the Board of Education cannot mandate uh, any of those. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think I think it's uh, if 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 that were to occur, I'm sure the state legislature would take some sort of action. Um, and and that bill that you're talking about, as it relates to schools, I have kids in JCPS, and that is an irresponsible uh, and and dangerous thing to do. I mean, I to me, it's scoring short-term political points as it relates to 
people who think that, again, that their individual freedoms are, are being trampled on, trampled on. But does Senator, Senator McConnell really think that's a good idea? I mean, you know, he, he's the, the he's the top dog on the on the Republican side. And, and I don't think if you asked him and he was being candid with you that he thinks that that's a really good idea. Uh, well, let's instead of focusing on a lot of the <laughs> negatives, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about something positive. I, I'd like to get your thoughts about, <clears throat> you know, the the um, Kentucky one collapsed, and the University of Louisville, under the leadership of, of President Benaputi, uh, put together um, a, a program uh, purchasing basically the assets of Kentucky one, which <laughs> included. Jewish Hospital, Fraser Rehab, St. Mary and Elizabeth, Lady of Peace, uh, Jewish Hospital in Shelbyville, medical centers east, northeast, south, and southwest, and all the physician groups that were 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 uh, uh, affiliated with those. Uh, they worked out this um, this uh, uh, arrangement with with the Kentucky Economic Development Finance Authority from a $50 million, $20 loan, half of which could be forgiven, and then put together uh, with a, the Jewish Heritage Fund for Excellence and Jewish Hospital and St. Mary Elizabeth Foundation for another $40 million, and basically stabilized healthcare in Louisville. And we had, we had Wayne Tuxen, I'm not sure if you know who Wayne is, on the show oh, a good while ago as a private practicing physician in one of these groups that got affiliated with U of L. I was on the faculty for 30 plus years and they managed to incorporate all of those, those, those entities plus the private practicing physician groups and integrated them with academic physician groups and it's all turned out very well. So um, uh, it's kind of a softball issue, but it would have been a much more, um, a much more difficult question. I mean, listen, I, I would, this, the answer I would give you would have given you in November of 2019 when this deal took place would be the same answer I would give you today, but it's so much easier to give that answer now, having seen how it worked out. I mean, would you do that deal to save immediately 6,000 jobs, uh, good healthcare, good paying jobs of Kentucky One employees, which is how many employees were, were you know, under threat of losing their jobs? And uh, would you do that deal? You would absolutely do that deal all day long. Um, so this one is a little bit of a softball. I mean, it is, it is amazing what U of L has been able to do. Um, I think they were losing 43 million. Uh, I think I wrote down $43 million a year. Kentucky one was losing and U of L was able to turn that around and make a small profit within the first year. In addition to the seeming, the, the, the what was almost a seamless transition uh, what seemed on the outside anyway, like a seamless transition. Um, I don't think that story gets as much um, media time as it, it is, as it deserves. I don't know. I, I, I agree. I absolutely. I don't agree. know that people fully understand what that deal accomplished and how many jobs and how much access to healthcare that, that negotiation um made happen. And let me just say, by the way, the former governor, Bevan, uh, who I disagreed with on almost everything, and particularly his tone and his <laughs> approach to, to politics, you have to give him some credit too. Uh, that was part, He was part of helping make that, that deal happen. And so people that don't want to ever give him any credit for anything should, should at least acknowledge that he was there when that when. We need to acknowledge Jason Smith, who played a really big role. Yeah, in, yes, in, in yeah, he happening. did. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if he, anyone watched 60 Minutes um, two weeks ago, but they the second segment of 60 Minutes was on uh, U of L Hospital and the nursing issues and the uh, COVID issues and and the you know the whole. Uh, 
adjustment of, of providing health care in, in a pandemic where people who have got uh, different forms of cancer and other medical problems have to wait in line or spend hours sitting around an emergency room before there's no beds. It's, I was going to say, let's yeah. bring that back around to social equity and thus yes. to health. Can you imagine what that would have meant for populations who already don't have great access to health care if Jewish and Kentucky One and all of those facilities had been allowed to be shuttered? I mean, you're right. You talk about rationing health care. We would not have had enough facilities for for the people that could pay for it, much less the people that couldn't. Uh, and we could not have managed the COVID-19 problem. That's either. right. Uh, well, let me just focus on another, uh, I think, what I would consider a healthcare positive. Now, number one, I think the governor did an outstanding job in spite of, <laughs> in spite of the legislature in managing this pandemic. And, and the local health organizations, Norton Healthcare, uh, Baptist, and U of L, who are generally in competition with each other, uh, all collaborated in, in an assortment of ways to, to keep healthcare in, 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 in Louisville. <laughs> As, as do it as well as you, you could do under the circumstances. And, and again, in a sense, this is another softball question for you. I mean, uh, I, I'm sure you recognize that. Um, I, I'm not sure how much local government was involved in that. If you have some thoughts about that, uh, you know, I'd appreciate it. I think the listeners would, would like to get a sense of where local government would fit in in the in a, the integration between the activities of three of these three healthcare organizations in Louisville, I can't pretend to know how it worked on the ground, but certainly in in theory, what should local government do in that circumstance? They should be the umbrella organization that organized all of those normally competing groups to to work together. But I can't pretend to know how it worked exactly, you know, actually on the ground. Go ahead, well, we're, we're running out of time, so I want to ask you a uh, difficult question. Uh, we have another <laughs> epidemic going on in Louisville. Uh, the homicide rate is uh, sky high. There's even an article in the Courier Journal yesterday that the coroner's office was being overwhelmed. Um, how, how do we deal with this, and um, what can Metro Council do to try to solve this problem? Well, I think the first thing that has to happen is that we have to focus on rebuilding the trust between the LMPD and the citizens of Louisville. Yes. I mean, without that trust, then, it, and it, then that badge doesn't mean anything. That uniform doesn't mean anything. That gun doesn't mean anything. And there's, it, this is complex because you have, on one hand, the FOP who takes very, very hardball what, and what I think seem from my perspective not to be common sense approaches to negotiations that would help the rank and file officers. Like you said earlier, Mike, being a police officer is, a, is an inherently difficult job and it should be all of our responsibility to try to do everything we can to make that job less hard. And I feel like you've got the FOP in one sense working in a counterproductive way to, 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 for us to be able to, to make the job easier for the rank and file officers. Um, when you talk about how you rebuild that community trust, the first thing you have to talk about is accountability. And the FOP has pushed back on police accountability at every turn. And you have to look at accountability a couple of ways. I mean, I see it as if I'm a ranking, accountability is helpful for, for po police officers to do their job. You know, if you're, if you're trained to do a certain job and you're doing that job the right way, then having a body cam on you, accountability, one form of accountability, uh, it, that, that makes your job a little bit easier because 
nobody's going to question what you did or how you did it when there's footage of that being there. So I think, you know, I hope that this Department of Justice investigation into the police department, I think it's an enormous opportunity. Uh, you don't ever want to get into a situation where the federal government has to come in because things are not going well. But now that the federal government is, is, is here and is, and is looking into it, I feel like um, we have an opportunity to, to address some of these things, but I have to be perfectly honest. And I had this conversation this morning um, with someone who's very familiar with it. Until we can figure out a way to get the FOP to back away and not be as intransigent on some of these, some of these issues, the FOP and the LMPD are, 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 are linked. In people's minds, you cannot separate those two things. And the, the, the rep reputation of the FOP among the citizens of Louisville is not strong, and therefore it sullies the reputation of the LMPD. So how we get them to, to participate and to agree to accountability in exchange for higher pay? Do I think police officers should be paid? Absolutely. We start at 45, and, and police officers in Cincinnati start at 65. It's not, it's not right. And then another thing, I'll just say one more quick thing. You know, we used to be able to keep police officers for a long period of time, in part because they had a really good pension, pension system. And when we cut the public pension system, the police officers, the police officers used to stay for 20 years if for no other reason than there was the uh, pension at the end of the road that was there for them. And so we kept police officers 20 years. Once they cut that pension system, there's no longer a reason for them to stay. Was the pension system cut by the state or the local, local state. government? State. Okay. Uh, Andrew, we're down to the last five minutes. Um, I, I want to kind of change the focus a little bit here. Something you alluded to earlier. Uh, um, we are all members of a, an organization called Kentuckians for Single Payer. And, and uh, so I, I, I'm, I'd like to know your personal views, uh, and you've shared that with us somewhat already a little bit, both from a, as a personal standpoint, as a potential um, public servant uh, or someone in public office, the prospect, how, uh, what your views are about the, the, if we were to have a single payer system in this country, <clears throat> the ability to provide health care to the, to, the, to the metro government, to the west end of Louisville, as opposed to this insane complex system that we have today, which we've got, uh, I don't know, somewhere between 60 million people who are either uninsured or underinsured, 60% of the bankruptcies that are filed in this country are filed you know, by people who can't pay their medical bills. So let me let, me let you um, uh, 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 ex express or share your thoughts about the, 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 the potential or the benefits or the situation that we might be in from a health delivery system as, as a public servant if we had a single payer system that was run by the federal government. So that's a, man, that's, there's a lot there. Uh, yeah, um, well, you have to talk fast. Time's running out. Let me ask you a, a really, really complicated question and, and uh, see if you can condense that into two <laughs> um, So uh, I am very much a, a, a firm believer that, that capitalism is the best economic system because it's so dynamic. But with that said, with that said, you have to take care of the people that fall out of the bottom of that system. If you don't do that, especially in a, a, a social democracy, then you're going to end up with pitchforks in the street, right? You have to be able to take care of people. People have to feel like they're participating in your economy, your, your capitalist economy, enough, you know, at a certain level where they can take care of their families and feel good about the work that they do and, and all of those things. And there's no single thing that we could do to better take care of lower income Americans than provide healthcare coverage. 
that before we talk about universal basic income, which I think is an interesting idea, not sure it's, but before we get into anything along those lines, the most helpful thing we could do for lower income Americans and frankly others like me who are in, you know, self-employed and don't have really good access to healthcare either, but the single thing we could do as a health uh, safety net for people is to provide, provide that. Let me give you a, a, a very specific example of that. When I was growing up, my mom was a, an apartment property manager and she managed, you know, mostly B and C properties. And it got to the point, we, for a long time, her policy was anybody who had declared bankruptcy, we would not rent to. And it got to the point where so many people that applied for apartments had medical bankruptcies on their record that we basically had to, two reasons. My mom wanted to do what was right and so, but also what was fair and also what was in the good, in the interest of the business, she had to say, we are going to rent to people now that have medical bankruptcies because there were so many people in that population that we could not afford, we couldn't afford not to, if that makes sense. And that's just a, that's just a very specific real estate um, perspective into medical bankruptcies uh, uh, and that sort of thing. I yeah. know we Major problem. Uh, Andrew, yeah, this has been great. We're at the end of the lollipop here. Mark's going to do his usual uh, you know, final scenario. Uh, we thank you very much uh, for coming on. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot, and we wish you good luck with your campaign. Thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Andrew. It was very enjoyable. Thank, thank you. you so much. Again, WFMP 1065 Forward Radio does not endorse any particular candidates or pieces of legislation, but we do endorse the need for an informed electorate. As such, we offer equal airtime to all registered candidates for any particular office. And you can get in touch with us at Forward Radio. Org. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the station. Thank you for listening.